0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, along with Mike DiBernardis, partner from Hughes Hubbard, for the inaugural episode of The Corruption Files. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a look at some key uh, FCPA and broader anti-corruption cases and see if we can mind them for uh, what they meant at the time, uh, what they mean now, and what they may mean down the road. So, Mike, first of all, welcome, and I'm thrilled to be able to do this series with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm I'm very excited for the inaugural episode.
0: So, in this first episode, we're going to take a look at energy cases that were FCPA violations, and we're going to start with uh, what uh, I or others called FCPA Settlement Day, and that was what the FCPA blog called making FCPA history when the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission announced settlements with uh, set six energy companies and one transportation company uh, for Panopina Settlement Day. And on Panopina Settlement Day, we had settlements with Panopina, a transportation company, and then the following energy companies, Shell, Transocean, Pride International, Tidewater, and Noble, to the tune of $156 million 0.5 uh, uh, total fines and penalties, and 73 million in civil disgorgement. Uh, this amount does not seem uh, as high now as some of the subsequent cases we're gonna talk about, but it was a massive uh, grounds, groundswell of FCPA cases. And it was really the first time we had seen the Department of Justice move through an industry if I could give a little background to this case, it really started um, when General Electric was going to buy a company called Vetco Gray. And in doing their pre-acquisition due diligence, they discovered that Vetco Gray had some suspicious payments for shipping equipment in Nigeria. So they told Vetco Gray, go investigate this, clean it up, and then come back to us and we'll look at some sort of uh, M&A deal. Vetco Gray did so, self-disclosed to the U.S. government received a fine and penalty. But someone in the Department of Justice FCPA unit got the bright idea. Well, if Panopina is doing this for one uh, energy company or energy uh, service company in Nigeria, maybe they're doing it for others. And lo and behold, they were doing it for a lot of other companies. And what they were doing is paying bribes to get equipment into Nigeria. So all of these cases revolved around that one set of facts, and it gave the DOJ a blueprint to look at these other energy companies and bring uh, these seven settlements on (coughs) Pilipina Settlement Day. I can't really emphasize enough uh, what this meant. Uh, This was 2010. At that point, it was uh, some of the biggest finds we'd ever seen, but it really sent shockwaves through the energy industry, the compliance community, and the white-collar defense bar. So, Mike, with that uh, introduction, what really did you see around Penal Settlement Day from the prosecutorial perspective, or that you used to counsel your clients of uh, what they needed to start looking at internally at that point in time?
1: Yeah, it's 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 always fun. I think Tom, to kind of go back and put yourself back in, especially when we're going back now to 2010, right? Uh, put yourself back in in the shoes uh, from then. You, you really, I think, touched on it, on, on the key piece from a prosecutorial perspective for this case, which is that whoever it was, whether it was one person or a group who had the, the bright idea to say, well, wait a second, if, if Panopina was doing this for Vetco Gray, they have all of these other clients that we know about. And Panopina World Transport was a, was a large publicly traded um, company who had a, a, a very nice client list. Maybe they're doing it for others, and they're working with those also working with those companies in Nigeria. So let's look into that. And I think that really unlocked the formula that that the DOJ has gone back to. Um, It's to me, it's slightly different than an industry sweep uh, um, that 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 we we have talked about in the past, and we'll talk about again. I'm sure Uh, this was more of a a, a hub and spoke type arrangement. Right where they they found the the hub being Panalpina, and said let's let's check out the other spokes. And you'll see this sometimes uh, later on. We've we've seen it with when they found a company who used a particular agent to pay bribes, and then they realize that that agent has worked with other large companies and and um you know or organizing their their investigation that way. Uh, but it was a really effective formula. I mean this this case when it was announced. You're absolutely right. It, it sort of um, the timing of it uh, for where we were with FCPA enforcement. This was such huge news for such a long time um, uh, that, and it was really this formula that was the center of it. It also um, it planted the seeds, I, I think, for what ultimately became the the pilot program and then the, the corporate enforcement policy. Right around this time is when you really started to hear uh, officials talk about, you know, voluntary disclosure. And, it, and during conferences, they they really tried to encourage companies to to disclose um, matters voluntarily, and said that you know the department would really look at that favorably. Uh, but up until this point, it was really hard if you looked at at various settlements to to figure out what the real benefit was to to compare cases but here we had you know what was it in total 7 or 7 or 8 resolutions at the same time um some of them some of the companies disclosed the the matters voluntarily others didn't now we can we can quibble about what 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 voluntary disclosure was when the DOJ really had started to investigate this hub and spoke structure already but um and we have we could sort of compare apples to apples about how how they were treated and and um and everything else so so really from this point forward it started it seemed that the department started to be more deliberate in terms of you know in announcing the settlements kind of kind of being clear about what they were giving credit for and how important disclosure and cooperation was and then for for i I remember this distinctly as i was working uh, at the time uh, counseling a, a company in the oil and gas industry and uh, not just for that client but but for others almost overnight interactions with customs officials became a, a a huge area of of concern not that it wasn't before but because there hadn't been been any major action in that space previously you know that was that was just considered lower risk than you know uh, a contracting official or even some of these you know permits and licensing processes and so um almost overnight we had clients kind of kind of come knocking about what do we do with customs how do, how do we how do we work this out what, what sort of controls do we need in in place um and it's i i'm i'm having trouble in my mind thinking of another situation like this right where with with one fell swoop uh whole industries started thinking differently about about a particular um process than they had the night before
0: so it's interesting you bring up uh, the customs angle because as we look back uh, over uh, now uh, somewhat 15 years, perhaps even longer, uh, retrospect of the bribery and corruption leading up to the enforcement actions, it, it's abundantly clear that bribery and corruption was going on. Uh, to the, to uh, the point with panel Pina, uh the special service, they called it, was the Black Express service. And they would literally wrap uh, oilfield tools and parts in black plastic and fly it in on black planes at night. Um, but it didn't stop there because in the billing, uh, the billing was a flat $25,000 per shipment. And so uh, this was pretty low hanging fruit, but it also made people realize you have to look at a variety of different uh, aspects. Obviously, due diligence has always been high or it should have been high, but now you needed to look at your books and records. Now you need to look at your payments. And now you needed to look at, well, how is that shipping service done? A uh, shipping company executive once gave a talk where he said, if you look at the success rates of getting equipment into a country, if you have a vendor with a hundred percent success rate, you have a problem because no one Has 100% success rate. And that really struck me and has always stuck with me that uh, you have to look at so many different data points now. And this was really the first time I think people had thought about looking beyond, well, what's our agent doing for us? Um, And that, uh, because of the really low hanging nature of what was going on, made part of this so dramatic. But the other point you raised I found is really interesting. Um, You see the Really, the beginnings or at least the intellectual underpinnings of the pilot program, which led to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, uh, as far back as uh, Panel Pena Settlement Day. And we had, even on Panel Pena Settlement Day, one of the energy companies, Noble, uh, got an NPA. They didn't even get a DPA. And so, uh, clearly, the department was communicating to us. Uh, it was somewhat difficult to read the tea leaves back then, and perhaps they had not thought through the direction they were going, but you began to see, and it will become a little bit more clear as we go through this series, how, how the responses of companies actually led to some pretty significant reductions in fines and penalties and the overall approach of the Department of Justice. But this case uh, really sort of broke the dam open, and... Uh, the department now, as you said, figure it out. Let's look at customer lists. Uh, let's look at uh, the suppliers who may not have been third-party agents. Um, and let's look at uh, some different information that is in the books and records that has to be certified to under Sarbanes-Oxley that we can data mine to see if anything uh, nefarious or askance is going on. One other thing about this case that Uh, directly impacted Panel pina was the following. 25% of their uh, top-line revenue came from shipping equipment into Africa. They were a Swiss company publicly traded in the United States, and they were viewed by many American companies, particularly energy companies uh, headquartered in the United States, as a safe bet and a safe choice because they were a Swiss company and because they did show up well in due diligence reports. And so um, companies, I think, began to realize that due diligence was not a one-time exercise, but really a process, number one. But number two, if your business model is based on bribery and corruption, and that bribery and corruption ends, uh, it's gonna very negatively impact your business model. Now that could be a company that has direct contracts they've obtained through bribery and corruption. But here, Panelpina, it was almost indirect because um, their business model was billing others for their own uh, bribery and corruption. And frankly, Panelpina never recovered. They are no longer one of the world's top uh, transport companies, although they still exist. And I think uh, they are run in compliance now and people have confidence in them. But um, they really never recovered from this. And so it also demonstrated how the negative impact, impact of bribery and corruption uh, can be. And that was one of the things that the Department of Justice talked about in the first edition of the FCPA Resource Guide, which was if your business model is based on this and you take that business away, whether you take it away in terms of a, a M&A deal that's gone south, a business venture, uh, either a joint venture partner or other business venture that uh, you have to jettison, uh, it can be a real cost much beyond simply the fine and penalty. So I still remember this this day in this case. It really was uh, the first sort of major group of cases. Obviously, we had Siemens uh, before this, but that was seen almost as an outlier from 2008. And uh, this day really, I think, still resonates today for uh, the reasons that uh, we've talked about so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you just mentioned, I think, is is worth kind of highlighting more, is you know, at, at this time, uh, I don't want to speak in, in in absolutes too much, but you had you had Panalpina, and then you know, the alternative to that, especially in Africa, were often these local companies with with very opaque backgrounds or a lack of a track record, uh, and so as you said, Panalpina was looked at as the as sort of the safest bet, right? Let's, let's go with the, with, with sort of the highest profile uh, option who has this, this long track record of experience and this long list of clients that our peers are using as well. Um, And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I I can't say this for certain, but, but I, I, imagine in that scenario that the, the level of due diligence applied was, was not as significant, certainly not as significant as what's going to be expected today, but even be, even in, in the standards of, of the the 2008, 2009 timeframe. Um, and you, you had this situation where, you know, if you run a Dun & Bradstreet report on Panopina, it would would show up fine. Uh, but one of the other noteworthy things here is that the, the energy companies knew, right? This wasn't a, it wasn't a secret uh, to to the energy companies about how Panopina was doing this, especially in these high, some of the higher risk jurisdictions in Nigeria in particular, which was was highlighted in most of the settlements. But they were they were perfectly aware what intervention payments meant and what, uh, you know the the I can't remember the name of Panopina had a whole service, <laughs> right? A, a whole service that was that was designed basically to to circumvent Nigerian customs. Um, and so you know it's. It's the it's the front end d- diligence, and then as you mentioned, also sort of that, that monitoring. That really at the time, I, you know, everything is, is is different when you look at it in hindsight. I I would say that that monitoring, especially these types of third parties, at the time wasn't all that common, right? If if you had a diligence process in place and they, they completed it, they sort of went about their business, and you thought that was good enough. And this
0: was a clear example of why it wasn't. And the, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. There's five steps in the, uh, third party risk management process, a business justification, a questionnaire, due diligence based on the questionnaire evaluation and contract terms and conditions. Then you sign the contract. Well, now you have the contract in place, but you're only at the starting point in my mind because you have to manage that relationship. And it really put that fifth step front and center, uh, that many companies did not have audit rights. Uh, and if they had them, they did not exercise those audit rights, and that due diligence really is an ongoing process. The other thing that uh, struck me about this case was we we knew about high-risk jurisdictions and high-risk geographic areas previously. Uh, Trace International has uh, released their Corruption Perception Index for many years, but I think it also drove home the the basic message that there are high-risk geographic areas And they are not unknown and you need to focus on your business interests, whatever they may be in those high risk geographic areas. And you may need to do that first. So we began to get a bit more of a risk based approach, uh, this time using either jurisdictions or geographic areas. And I think that's something that's uh, stayed with us till this day.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And I
0: actually think it's even more
1: specific than that, not just high risk jurisdictions but high risk jurisdictions for particular transactions. So I'm, not, I'm I'm not picking on Nigeria it was just happened to be this the central central part of of these cases but the customs process in Nigeria uh, even at the time was was known to be to be very difficult. It was known to to also be very uh, well to lack a certain transparency. So it was a very high risk area. Uh, and Nigeria overall was a high risk jurisdiction but the customs process in particular lacked the lacked the controls that you might want to see um to to sort of t- to uh manage some of the corruption risk and and really you know I I think these companies probably didn't address that the way that that they would be expected to be right uh, um even if they though they hired a, a publicly traded uh customs clearance company that that you know had had a long list of high profile clients. More was required. that, that became really abundantly clear.
0: So this case really uh, I think was not so much a precursor. It was really the start. We'd had the uh, sort of modern era of FCPA enforcement, some date that from two thousand and four forward or two thousand and seven forward, certainly with Siemens. but this what seemed to be the first one where we had a lot of companies, all very high profile companies. Uh, announced in a way that I think everyone went, wow, we better start paying attention now. And I'd like to maybe end this episode, Mike, by asking uh, were your colleagues at Hughes Hubbard and your client base at the time, were you really able to communicate the sort of wild nature of this and uh, this is significant and we either need to do things differently or at least look at what we're doing to see if we have a problem?
1: Absolutely, and I really think there's there's two two pieces, two sides of that for for our our clients in the oil and gas industry. It was unmistakable. I mean, the the, the not just not not just the the settlement, but you know, Pino Pino, if I'm not mistaken, they shut down their operations in Nigeria. Uh, I mean, it, it, the, the the waves in the industry. You could, they, you you couldn't avoid it. It was it was uh, remarkable, and, and uh, like I said, o- almost overnight, um, that industry you, we had clients looking for different solutions. Now they're looking for different solutions, and the one that they thought was the most reputable <laughs> turns out has got all these issues. And so you, you're sort of going down to the next rung, and and uh, realizing we have to do really enhanced due diligence on these types of third parties. So that was in the oil and gas industry. There was there was no mistaking it. Even outside of the oil and gas industry, uh, because of the, the names involved, because of the number of companies kind of being hit in one shot, and because of the nature with, with the customs clearance process, where if you were a company basically that was that was doing business kind of anywhere outside the U.S. Uh, and, and having to, to import goods in any capacity, this was a risk area. And it might have been a risk area that you hadn't thought of, and that was that's a really easy, much easier message to convey, and one that strikes home, I think, to, to clients more than trying to take, you know, some small uh, fact pattern in a in a larger FCPA case and apply it to the company's business. This was this was something that most of our clients were dealing with on a daily basis, and perhaps weren't recognizing the
0: the associated risks. So I'd like to end with something uh, that I thought was a very positive outcome from Panalpina Settlement Day, particularly in the energy industry, but in a way that spoke across uh, different industries, and it was the following, and I I observed this and I was a part of this, which was the energy industry's business solution was obviously not to stop doing business in high-risk jurisdictions, but to share that risk and to share that solution. And what I mean by that is if you were doing business with any of the major oil field service companies in West Africa or Nigeria, you had to have a compliance program in place. Then it became, if you were doing business with an energy company, you had to have a compliance program in place. And it wasn't just that you had a program in place. They would come look at your program and they would audit your program before they signed a contract. So the business solution was in the energy industry for the industry to start requiring compliance programs literally up and down the chain. And I give this example because I was involved in it. And I had a client who was a $15 million software company and they had one piece of software that did something down hold, And they were too small to have their own sales force. So they had sales agents. And I told them that if they didn't have a compliance program in place, that they would get no investment dollars and they'd probably get no contracts. When one of the major oilfield field service companies two weeks later came um, after I'd been able to put a program in place, and they wanted to look at the third-party due diligence. And we had it, and we had done it. And uh, that drove home to me. Everyone was looking at this up and down the chain. I don't mean to suggest it didn't—it stopped all bribery, and corruption, and energy, but it was a first step towards making companies do business in compliance with a more robust nature. And that was not driven by the government, although it was driven by the regulatory enforcement of Panopina, Uh, Settlement day, and we've seen that in several other industries now. So that was a uh, outcome that I thought uh, really demonstrated that there is a business solution to compliance, and it's to do business with other companies that do business in compliance. So it seemed to me to be at least a positive net coming out of all this. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that's I think that's well said, and and uh, I, I I certainly see. Saw at the time and and still see today the the effects of that sort of this this first instance of um, an industry really uh, um, I don't want to say taking upon themselves but but you know starting to put these standards in place that aren't perfect but um, you know one of the one of the even though they're not perfect one of the things that the, those types of steps do is that it it normalizes compliance programs, it normalizes due diligence for everybody involved. So I, I, I think that's a really good point.
0: So Mike, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us uh, in our next episode where we're going to take up the pharma industry.
1: Thanks, Tom.